everybody to the little podcasting engine that could. This is Killinois with Bird and Kim. I am the man with the plan, but with loans for 80 grand, Birdman. And with me, as always, the hostess with the mostest, Cammy B. Cammy, how you doing? Good, good. I'm a little drunky, you know, was hanging out with our grandma. Uh, envious. Drunky, <laughs> drunky. Uh, so, um, you know, we're just going to go right into it. So, uh, well, we're deviating from the script a little. You know, obviously, Killinois. It's it's self-explanatory. We talk about murders that happen in Illinois. But this one is, again, a little different because we're going to focus on a case that happens in a little small town called Georgetown in Texas. But it does, and we promise, it does have an Illinois connection. And when we talk about that connection, you're going to be like, God damn, what the fuck? Like, it's just so... It will blow your mind. So, I mean, that's the only thing I can say. And, well, Cam, all I got to say is, uh, you ready to do the fucking thing? Let's do the fucking thing. Alrighty, so. Let's go. Without further ado. The story starts, um, in 1952, and the individual who was born then, his name is James Gordon Wolcott. Now, at this time, he seemed to be born into the perfect family. Being a smart kid, he also had the IQ of 134 at the age. So he wasn't dumb by any means. Wolcott, like we said earlier, is a Texas excuse me, is a Texas native. Um, he was actually born in a town called Georgetown, Texas. And his father was an important figure in the biology field. He was actually in the process of heading up the university biology department ladder. So he was pretty smart himself. As for his mother, she was an avid activist in the religious community. And finally, he had a sister named Libby, who was 17 years old. And they were close enough in age where I could say they were probably best friends. They seemed to hang out a lot, and they attended concerts and events regularly. Both of them attended Georgetown High School as well. So, we get the picture that this is a all-American family. But, the thing about that is... This is 1967, as they're growing up in the 60s. And this is during the middle, of course, the Vietnam War. Now, this is a time during peace, love, no war, where we have a lot of just the, the structure of the American family, especially from the generation that preceded it, the World War II generation, and the younger, you know, baby boomers. That's when we start having that the, the, that little slow divide and then when you factor in the fact that you know a lot of drugs are traveling around there's a lot of people experimenting a lot of rallies are occurring around this time um again when we talk about our previous episode uh, it doesn't matter how long you were there in vietnam or even to experience it in some shape way or form you were affected and well caught uh, unlike tim ferguson who we talked about the last episode While he was not part of the war, he was part of the peace movement. Oh, sorry about that. Adam just burned his finger. Oh, (laughs) He just burned his finger. Sorry. But anyways, he, like uh, Birdman just said, Wolcott was more on the peace side rather than the war side. Now, there's not a whole lot of information on whether or not Wolcott had a poor childhood, but from what we've gathered, there seemed to be pretty much the all-American family. Mm Mm-hmm. 
That is if you're a believer in the right for war. And so what I'm trying to say is, Wolcott and his father didn't exactly see eye to eye. Both of them had very different point of views. Um, His father, again, like you were saying earlier, is from the generation where you believe in war, you believe in the American dream. As for James, his point of view really fell around the hippie, free-loving lifestyle. He had the nice hippie hair. We all know what that looks like. Dreadlocks, long, kind of gross-looking. What if they had dreadlocks in the 60s? I know in the 70s, yeah. Yeah, dreadlocks, yeah. I'm getting ahead of myself. Continue. Yeah, I was like, I don't, I don't know. He had the hippie hair. <laughs> but what did he love to go to and attend were the peace rallies. Something his father didn't exactly agree upon, which caused tension in the family. Because, again, James's father, father did not allow him to have his long hippie hair or his buttons, or his protesting, or anything protesting the Vietnam War. But do remember, he's only 15 at this time. And let's be honest, as a 15-year-old teenager, who doesn't have tension with their parents? And not me. If you have, if and all my listeners who come from black families, you can't have no damn tension. Like you try Dude, to, my parents whoop my ass every time I Exactly. Start. Let me try to turn up my mom or grandma. Still, still, they're like, what'd you just say? And I'm like, mm-hmm. I don't want your nails hitting me anymore. Exactly. So, um, again, we get we get this picture. We get this 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 frame view that this is a family, all American family, despite this problems and underlying tensions. This seems like a normally perfect, not perfect, but normal family. But then all of that is shattered on August fourth, nineteen sixty seven. Uh, the night starts out with Libby and James attending a rock concert with friends in Austin, Texas. They return home around 10 p.m. where their mother was sleeping and the father was reading in the living room. And both of them was expecting to see each other this next morning and not seem to notice any hostility. Now, the rock concert in Austin, Texas was about a good 30-mile drive from Georgetown. Uh, probably 45 minutes uh, thereabouts. Enough time for James to go through his plan and perfect it. Now, we will have to add beforehand, the week before, James was really planning out to do these horrific deeds and to pretty much execute his family. And uh, as it would later be determined that we don't want to get ahead of ourselves, but you can go next, but yeah. We'll let them decide when that comes because yeah. we have um, different views than what the justice system has said. Um, so like uh, Birdman was saying, it was like any other normal night. Once Libby and James returned home, she Libby went right to bed. No one knew about James's idea and plan for murder until it actually helped, happened. It was confirmed that Wolcott had this night planned, like you said earlier, for a week, which raises a lot of red flags. As Libby and her mother rested, Wolcott's father read a book in the living room. All was quiet. Not even a mouse could be heard. But during the silence of the storm is when James started huffing airplane glue. Now, what they've stated was he's been experimenting with the airplane glue for a little while. I personally don't huff airplane glue, so I don't really know the effects. I did it in the fourth grade a couple of times. And, like, I did it in the fourth... I sniffed glue a couple of times in fourth grade. And, like, the only thing I got was, like, hmm, 
damn, this this is this smells interesting. Like, but like nothing to to go Columbine on my whole class or anything like that. So everybody tried the sharpies. Everyone was like, oh look, we're high. But not once was I ever like, God, I feel like killing somebody. It's fucking weird. <laughs> but during the silence of the storm is when James, like we were saying, started huffing his airplane glue. What were some of the effects I found were short-term and long-term. And according to Drug Free World, um, the short-term effects for huffing airplane glue, glue include a couple of the following things. Slurred speech, a drunk, dizzy, or dazed appearance, an inability to coordinate movement, hostility, impaired judgment, unconsciousness, kind of sort of like if you were drunk. Like um, you do get rashes around the nose and mouth wherever you decide And then, and then there are a couple long-term effects, oh. which, again, we don't really have a confirmation whether or not he was having the long-term effects or short-term. But some of the long-term effects entail muscle weakness, disorientation, lack of coordination, depression, um, memory impairment, but most importantly, death. Wow, this sounds like my Xanax withdrawals. Good Lord. Right? <laughs> or drinking. <laughs> Oh man, it's a. It, I bet you I found it on WebMD, and I'm sure it has to do with cancer or something. See, that's the time, thing. So. Like you can look, you can look for a runny nose, go to WebMD, and the next thing you know, you have an inoperable brain tumor. So, I mean, right, and you're gonna die in 24 hours. Yeah, that's and that's one of those things that you really. And again, we don't we don't advocate to just after you finish listening to this to find the nearest glue and then huff away. But I mean, it's one of those things that to me you kind of take it with a grain of salt. But again, exactly, and again, I've never tried airplane glue, so I can't confirm if these are right or not. Mm-hmm. So, anything back to the night in question. So, after huffing this, allegedly huffing this airplane glue, this is when all hell breaks loose. James grabs his father's twenty-two caliber rifle, approaches his father again. His father is reading his book, has no idea what is about to happen, and the next thing we know, he gets shot twice. Once in the chest and in the face. Dies immediately. James then approaches Libby's room where it seems she didn't hear anything. He ends up shooting his sister in the chest in the face just like his father. And she dies just instantly like her, her dad. And then James approaches his parents' bedroom where his mother rested. And just like Libby, didn't hear anything. Well, it's never been proved whether or not she heard the shots, but... When he approached her room, he shot her twice, just like the uh, father and his sister, once in the chest and once in the head, leaving her for dead. And she was not dead immediately uh, at the moment, but she was trans- She was transported to the nearest hospital, and she was pronounced dead hours later. Uh-uh-uh. Now, this is where the case gets more and more planned and premeditated. Than just him planning this. Not only does he hide the rifle in their crawl space. Yes, exactly. He hides in the crawl space and he plans it. But quote unquote, this isn't premeditated. So Mm. again, I wouldn't know. But again, once hidden, James continued this plan and ran onto his front porch, screaming for help, yelling out loud, help, help. How could this happen? Somebody murdered my family. Now, this was the time before 911. So Mm. all he could do was continue to yell for help and screaming, how could this happen? But let's be honest, we all know how this happened, as well as he does. 
While he was screaming and yelling for help, a car full of college students stopped and assisted him. What they did was pretty much brought him back inside, and he explained that someone killed his family. These college students assisted him, returned to the massacre, and this is where they found Mrs. Wolcott and gave her the chance of hopefully, hopefully surviving and getting her to the hospital. Like Birdman said earlier, she didn't make it. So, during this time, James is taken in by his neighbor, who happens to be a minister. Now, we don't know the exactly verbiage as it was never uh, it was sealed according to court records, but according to the conversation with the uh, paraphrasing it, Texas Ranger confronted James and he pretty much told him everything. He explained to the officers that he started by explaining the in-depth details of what happened and how he murdered his family. Including that, of course, he did the killing. Now, remember, he was yelling before to the eyewitnesses and the college students that, oh, somebody just killed my family. He's still around. So, I mean, going for that to it is a complete 90 degree turn. He confesses up to it. So the, it sounds to me like someone who's pretty com- uh, competent and understands their own emotions. Pretty much, pretty much. So then the officers began to ask him, why? Why would you do this to your own family? And then he pretty much states how he hated his family. That sounds like probable cause to me. Boom, right there. Uh-huh. Then he goes, he states how his mother chewed too loudly. I don't know what the hell that means, chewing gum. Like a cow or something. Oh, how his sister had an annoying Texas accent. I mean, of course, when you're in Texas, you're going to pick up the accents. Like, what the hell? And did, did, Does he know he's got one, too? Like, like pot calling kettle black. What the fuck? <laughs> and then finally, he goes in this huge diatribe with his father. Now, we mentioned before about the divide with generations, especially during this time of uh, the, the Vietnam War. And he stated specifically that his father made him cut his hippie hair wouldn't let him wear his anti-Vietnam pins. And now we already know he planned his killing. We know he has a reason to kill. And being at the age of 15, however, he had to undergo psychiatrist help and test ensures that he didn't have any mental illness so he can stand fit to stand trial. Now, upon reviewing his family tree, there it showed no history of mental health. None. Zip. Zero. However, he was still diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia, which, mind you, people are still disagreeing with this conclusion to this day. Like we said earlier, he was a very, very smart kid with an IQ of 134. This shows he wasn't dumb by any means. And this is where we begin to wonder, was he smart enough to get away with the perfect murder? Well, let's not get ahead of ourselves. I mean, we haven't got to this. Well, well, fuck it. Might as well. But again, was he smart enough to have everyone believe that he was unfit for trial? I mean, he knew he was planning a murder for weeks. He stayed for multiple times. He did not like his family. He understood the outcome of one being killed, especially in that age and especially in an IQ of 134. This don't sound like a paranoid schizophrenic to me, but then again, I ain't in the psychology war. But, you know, I don't know, and to this day, don't know why he truly killed his family. Uh, After being diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia, he would explain to his doctors that he thought of suicide. Was this from sniffing glue? 
This is this because he has a mental disorder. We don't know. Only he knows. But he was put on trial. His defense attorney based this whole case off of insanity, of course. And it kind of reminds me. I don't know if you ever heard of the Twinkie defense. No. So the Twinkie defense goes back to uh, the case of... Uh, I'm blanking on the name. But uh, in 1978, uh, Harvey Milk, who was a... San Francisco uh, politician. He was the first openly gay politician in America. He was killed by a disgruntled colleague. And in as the uh, investigation and in, in the trial eventually happened, the uh, the disgruntled uh, colleague, the politician, had claimed under his uh, under the advice of his attorneys that. Because he used, uh, because he ate a lot of Twinkies leading up to the murder, it impaired his judgment, and he just had this psychotic break, and he goes to kill uh, this, this other man. So I mean, when y'all think of this airplane glue, it just comes to me that's a flimsy and contrived excuse. But I mean, the Twinkie? Did he get away with it? Oh, he was found not guilty. Oh, that's another. That's gonna be another story, guys. That's fucking. In- well, that happened in California. So, go on, sorry. But, um... That's fucking crazy. <laughs> yeah. Now, you gotta hold on. We gotta find... I'm, I'm gonna look uh this guy. I believe he was found not guilty, but, uh... Again, it was just the Twinkie defense. Oh, guys, look it up. This is just crazy. So, the trial is unremarkably short. Probably... It would last for about less than a week, and it's an all-male jury. And after this flimsy explanation, as I can only summarize... Of his fi- family driving him insane, he was declared so mentally impaired that he had no idea that he was killing his family and had no idea that he was wrong. Now, as Cam pointed out, schizophrenia involves genes more often than not, and the environment, but not a specific gene. And even though, again, this was planned a week in advance and he expressed his hatred for his family... And he continued to claim he understood what happened. Again, let's not forget that IQ. I just want to preach that IQ because it's not like it was 50 or below average. Someone with this high of an IQ at this age, I would think has a pretty good understanding of his surroundings. February 1968, the judge sent Wolcott to Rusk State Hospital in Texas. I'm not going to even say that. Nacodoches? Nacodoches. It almost looks like Nacho. Nacodoches. It was stated for him to stay there until he regained his sanity, which, again, I don't think was ever lost in the first place. Mm -hmm. And by the way, he was... Right, and by the way, he was found not guilty by reason of insanity. So, as opposed to that, he was sent to Rusk State Hospital. So, after savagely, brutally annihilating his entire family, Wolcott was released only, only seven years later when he was 21 years old. Mm Mm-mm. That's fucked up. Because what's even weirder and oddly coincidental is he was the only surviving child of his deceased parents, which means he inherited their estate and he started receiving a monthly stipend from his father's university pension. Coincidence? I don't think so. The Rusk psychiatrist declared this 21-year-old, which, again, they stated is 
unbelievable recovery for someone who was so mentally ill. How convenient. That he didn't even know he was killing his family. Weird? I know. So, so around this same time, Russ State Hospital begins this student practicum program with Stephen F. Austin University in 1970. Now, Wolcott takes this program and he receives a bachelor's degree from the university in 1976, two years after his release from Rusk, and a master's degree in 1980. And you want to know what it was in? Guess, guess. Just guess it. Just guess. Psychology. Fucking psychology. psychology. <laughs> you Fuck gotta be man. fucking kidding me. So, around this time, Wolcott applied to the Nachadoshis municipal court to affect a legal name change. Now his father didn't include his original lawyer's names, but it stated it would be in his best interest to change his name from James Gordon Wilcott to something else. And the judge agreed. Now since he changed his name, he began his doctoral work at the University of Illinois. And he received his PhD in psychology in 1988. Two years earlier, in 1986, he began teaching at Millican University in Decatur, Illinois, in the Behavioral Sciences Department, where he eventually received tenure as an assistant professor. So, in, in, in 2011, the Georgetown Advocate in Texas, where the murders occurred, began an investigation finding out the whereabouts of Wolcott. At that point, it was 44 years... I believe, yes, 44 years since the murders had happened. So this investigation stretched over two years before it was finally determined that the professor and Wolcott were one and the same. And it starts this avalanche where it reaches not just locally news, I mean, in Illinois, but nationally. I mean, it. Everybody covers it. The Times covers this. Chicago Tribune covers Freaking this. crazy. New York Post covers this. Inside Edition, I believe, covered it. But you have multiple... Uh, it's a lot of people are calling for his resignation. And this speaks to... At this point, he was a... He was working at Millican University for almost 30 years. So he had accrued such a reputation bulletproof have you that the university just pretty much said well they're not you know we're, we're not going to do anything fucking crazy man fucking insane and the and the craziest thing about this story that broke throughout all of illinois and really really gained national attention was when they asked for his point of view to get things cleared and to really clear his name he stayed silent mm. and many times they question and question why he did it. And a lot of people agree that he is schizophrenic. A lot of people also disagree that he's the perfect murderer. He got away with the perfect murder. I actually do have a close family friend who not only attended his college, but was in, in his class their freshman year. And what they had to say was, yeah, I had him in my freshman year before the story came out. But I thought he was a good teacher who was insanely intelligent and passionate about his teaching. I took his psychology class, funny enough. He just stuck to himself, honestly. I never felt uncomfortable um, around him. He was there to teach and teach us and make us better students, and that was it. I know he had a rough past, but I think he turned himself around and used his own psych problems to learn and teach others about it all. 
and I think he definitely was schizophrenic, but honestly, who knows? There's no way in telling. He could have just been insanely smart and know how to act to be diagnosed. So again, the question still remains to this day. Was James Wolcott actually schizophrenic? Was it an act? Did he state his, even though he stated he planned this murder and hid the evidence, and there's no mental health issues in his family, the question remains is, was he the first generation of schizophrenia? Mm -hmm. Was he cured? Did a brilliant sociopath pull a big one on our own social, on his justice system? I mean, we don't know. Did he actually have a rapid and apparent total recovery? Did he really get away with the perfect murder? Yeah. And this is my thing, I guess, in closing. I guess it's important to to remind you guys that, number one, this guy, Walcott, had deeply rooted hatred for his family to the point that he planned the murders for at least a week and before had had stated that he tried to commit suicide so you get you have this picture of this unhappy kid even though he's a he's a uh, brilliant person again plan them a week and vent in advance Number- and all he said was a week it could have been months in advance yeah for all we know for all we know and number two i really want to try to understand what Wolcott was thinking by at least trying to be empathetic in regards to, you know, mental illness. And like I said, I'll be honest with you guys for the better part of my life. You know, I've struggled with mental illnesses. I'm not ashamed to say that I've had deeply rooted, fucked up issues. I've struggled with depression. I've struggled with anxiety. I've struggled to have impaired, paranoid thoughts time and time again. And man, I should really save some of that shit when I go to my shrink next week. But what I'm trying to say, yes, I have my psychological problems, but hey, who doesn't? And then also, like, factor in my, my IQ. I'm not one to, to brag or anything, but I took a mental test a couple of years back, and I found out that, you know, my IQ is around that same range that Wolcott was. He said 134, and I was at a 131. So the reason I bring that up is, like, when I make, you know, formulated choices, I want to do so in a cerebral, calculated meaning to it you know it's it's got to be i guess support uh word choice uh using but it has to be premeditated you know i do i do something completely to elicitate it's nothing impulsive there is a rhyme to a reason there is a method to the madness why i do things and as we said earlier you know the guys uh the witnesses had recalled the crime scene that they described wolcott as an emotional wreck hysterical pounding on his fist on the ground as to say who would do such a thing and all this while telling the students that someone has murdered my family now right there as surface level as it is coming from a described brilliant mind especially at the age of eight uh, 15 an age that's still cognitively developing that is a learn diversion tactic. You're deliberately putting it on other people's minds that you have been the victim of this horrible tragedy. Your family has been wiped out. This monster is on the loose. Get help. And he keeps up this charade to at least initially when authorities come on the scene and interview him later in the hospital. He is playing the role, as we said, of the grieving son, the grieving brother, in the hopes of fooling all of these people. And for whatever reason, 
when the Texas Ranger, who was called on the scene, bluntly asked him, did you kill your father? Maybe he realizes the jig is up and he confesses. And again, when we talk about the trial, it's one of those things when the lawyers plead the airplane glue defense. That to me, again, it may have had some merit to create some reasonable doubt to the jury because, hey, he's 15. And we get that. But then again, it feels contrived to me that the jury just falls for it hook, line, and sinker, and in the fast manner that they did it. So all of that compounding that he starts a new life, there's no problem with that because, I mean, this is America. This is a land of second second chances and opportunities. But all things, he becomes a psych professor and a pretty damn good one at that. And it's not a stretch to say this ain't no coincidence. It just comes up way too convenient. And coming from when you were saying all of his tactics he was using was when he was 15, mm-hmm. it's a prime example. When you're 15, you want to get away when you do something wrong. But like you said earlier, he confessed when authority or an adult figure came in yeah. to the picture, which shows what most 15-year-olds do. Which, again, like you're saying, a lot of us fight with mental disorders. I do as well. I, I, I act out a little more than you probably do. Um, sometimes I do impulse things, but I'll drink to at that. the same time, I've never <laughs> had an impulse thought that took over my brain to tell me to go kill people. Right. Um, but again, I don't have schizophrenia. I don't know how that works um, whatsoever. So the question still stands. Is he a brilliant mastermind? Or did he really go through this experience and this traumatic schizophrenic time in his life i don't know if he takes medicine now oh i don't know whatever they did in the hospital cured him but i don't read a lot of stories of people being cured from schizophrenia in the span of six years anxiety ptsd and it's it's an ongoing question we have and like we what we didn't ask earlier or say earlier is this is a well-known story in Illinois, and if you have any extra information on this or facts, correct facts that we miss said or whatever, email us at KillinoisPodcast.com. Again, if you can't spell Illinois, it's Illinois with a K, so it's very easy. But if we are offending you guys in any way or anybody who happens to be on the defense side or the prosecuted side... We're not here to ruin your reputation. We're just here to report. And like I said earlier, if we do say something wrong, yeah. let us know. Correct us. And if you guys have any other fun, crazy stories like that, yeah. let us know and email us at Podcast at gmail.com. But like our shit on Facebook, bitches. Uh-huh. And um, right there, uh, we'll be back with you next time in uh, whatever episode we're doing next. Well, I don't think we really... Nope, we did. We got a biggie one. And I think uh, as we talked about the last... Oh my god, so giddy about this. I'm excited. It shows how morbid we are. But uh, we talked about in the last episode, uh, you can't... you can't, We can't do a Kelenoid without this guy, John Wayne Gacy. Again, he is... If, if you put a Mount Rushmore of killers in America, let alone Illinois, Gacy's up there. I mean... He is, you know, on He's record. He's the backbone of Illinois. <laughs> Boy, what a fucking clown, no pun intended. But he's on record of killing 33 young men. And, you know, 
just the the details of when we do you know when we go into that case i mean it's just so haunting and so tragic and this really is fucked up but again that will be coming to you very very soon so on that note uh for cam this is birdman we're singling out and this is Killinois podcast with bird and cam be there or be killed bitches bitches peace out girl scouts Ooh. all right yes that one was good i like